Hello, good evening, good day everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show, episode 148. I think the new, the 150th episode will be in the new year. So today we are on number 148. So uh, before we begin, let's see who all is there uh, on the live chat. I can see Tejas, Exo, Exo, Daniel Nicholson, Saurabh, Ketan, Tejas, Akshit, Vikram, Dan, Charan, Jetha, Jong, An, Albert, XP, Melvin, Typical Gamer, Manohar, Sayan, Shivam, Vladimir, Biden, Technish, Rahul, Tejas, Naman, Aditya, Pranav, Abhinav, Tanmay, Sky, Yashas, Dilip, G, Harbi on Wheels, Shubhayu, Shailesh, Sushant, Vladimir, Zelensky, <laughs> Karan, Nalavat, Rajat, Aparichit, Prince, Chauhan, Nandan, Mayank, Feminist, Slayer, Mazar, Chachar, Bhavna, Vansh, Ahire, Rahul, Zaktel, Everyday Things, Krishna, Prasad, Jay, Pankaj, G-O-H, Dungar Singh, Chauhan, Asmenor, Mohit, Debosman, Stone, 420, Prabhakar, Aditya, Mr. Giga, Chad of India, Vikram, Dan, Charan, Dheeraj, Pamel, Zhong, Jina, Dilip, Gaurav, Teja, Akasam, Arsh, Nitul, Crazy Brains, Nick Mihir, Parth, and lots and lots and lots of other people. Priyanka, um, Lokesh, Asminor, Sushant, Ashima, Arun, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day. Thank you so much for being on the show, on this live telecast. So let us begin with the questions. As always, I've taken a whole lot of questions. Let's see how many of them I can answer. I'm able to answer today. So let's go for question number one. Question number one is about the G20 presidency. Aditya says, please explain the importance of the G20 presidency for India. Sorajit says, India is the president for, for G20 for 2023. What opportunities does it bring to India in terms of geopolitics? And Voldemort says, what's your take on India's presidency in G20? How can India use this power other than inviting countries like Singapore or whatever else? Yes. So yes, uh, uh, India is now has now assumed the G20 presidency. India is the president of the G20 group of nations for one year. So first of all, let's understand that this is a rotating presidency. Uh, whichever nation is due to host uh, the next G20 summit becomes the president for one year. And the G20 summit is also allocated on a rotating basis. So the previous G20 summit, which happened just a few uh, couple of months ago, was uh, hosted by Indonesia in Bali. So Indonesia was the G20 president. Now the next summit is going to be in India. So India is the G20 uh, has assumed the G20 presidency. So it's a rotating presidency. It's not something that uh, that India has won by defeating everybody else. It's not like that. It's something that every nation in the G20 group uh, gets once in roughly 20 years or so. So that's what, first of all, it is. Now, what does this G20 presidency mean? So first of all, it has no real geopolitical benefits. Yeah. This is more like a prestige thing or a status thing that yeah we are the we are the G20 president. But of course it 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 brings in some tangible benefits for the nation. Uh, so the nation gets to host the G20 summit and not just one summit but a whole lot of events that take place throughout the year. So you get to showcase uh, your people, your capabilities, the talent that you have in the nation, um, the various institutions and organizations that you have. You get to bring various people together from various nations and uh, have them interact with your people. 
so uh, that helps your nation in a variety of ways you get to show off how how wh- whatever you have achieved so that uh, kind of enhances your soft power nations like china are really good at this you know showing off how great they are apparently how great they are right and so on so it is an opportunity for each nation to showcase whatever is great about it whatever is good about it you know whatever talents it has and all all that so there are events that are going to be held in various parts of the nation in india throughout the next year throughout this uh, this uh, coming year and it's going to be a great opportunity for lots of people in various parts of india to interact with uh, uh, g20 delegates from across the world in in their particular uh, field of expertise and and it it helps uh, india showcase uh the achievements that india has done so let's take a look at the press release and all that uh to see what uh, what exactly uh this means for india where are we one second so let's go and take a look at this india assumes a g20 presidency uh what does this mean so india has assumed the g20 presidency from indonesia today this is on december 1 2022 right uh this is uh less than a month ago the group of 20 we know what it is so that's the press release now what else do we have um so india gets to set the theme of this this presidency so the theme of india's g20 presidency is vasudeva kutumbakam or one earth one family one future yeah and the g20 delegates and guests will get a glimpse of india's rich cultural heritage and the year long india experience so you get to showcase your soft power your culture india will host over 200 meetings in over 50 cities across 32 different work streams so a lot of exposure to to um, the, the rest of the world will get a lot of exposure to what india is doing and it will give a great opportunity for indians in these 32 different world work streams in 50 cities to get an exposure to the to the you know to to international delegates and all that so it's great about it's it's great in that perspective um so that's what it is a theme is vasudeva kutumbakam one earth one family one future all that um what are the india's g20 priorities this is interesting green development climate finance and life accelerated inclusive and resilient growth accelerating progress on sdgs or sustainable development goals that i believe that's what it is um technological transformation and digital public infrastructure multilateral institutions for the 21st century and women led development so these are the the uh, priorities that india has uh, has set forth for the next year and this is going to be about uh, 200 meetings in over 50 cities across the different work streams and these are the priorities that india is going to focus on and uh, india essentially is going to lead the g20 uh, grouping in 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 all of these things so the first sherpa meeting whatever that is of the presidency has begun is begun uh, it's already done in the historic city of Jai- of udaipur rajasthan so as you can see you have delegates from the various g20 nations and all that yeah and they get to see uh, you know india's culture and what india has to offer and there are discussions and interactions you know exchange of thoughts and ideas and perspective that is always great when you are working in various fields and all that and also there is this science summit so the g20 has a s20 component which is the science 20 a summit which is also going to be held in india so uh, the last science 20 thing was the summit was held in in indonesia in jakarta september 20 and 21 yeah um 
so you had something in Rome, you had uh, something in Saudi Arabia. This was the Rome was in 2020, 21, Saudi Arabia was 2020, and so on. Uh, so that is what happened there, and you can see the various uh, details. There is a website. If it uh, opens, it will open eventually. So the the theme for the Science 20 Summit was recover together, uh, recover together, recover stronger. So obviously the theme is the pandemic and recovering from the pandemic, and that was the theme of the. Uh, S20 summit hosted by Indonesia. Now, what about the Indian S20 summit? It's going to be in 2023. So the, the theme is disruptive science for innovative and sustainable development, right? Let's find out the focus areas. There's an inception meeting, which is setting the stage, then clean energy for a greener future, universal holistic health, connecting science to society and culture, and synthesis and policy recommendations, right? So I personally am going to be involved in this process. I am going to be one of the Indian delegates for the so the first meeting is going to be uh, at the end of January, I believe in Pondicherry. So I will be participating in that and I will, I'm going to make sure that I put forth uh, proposals and, uh, you know, ideas that I would like to share and about all of these various uh, focus areas. So I am going to be participating in, in, in the science uh, component of the G20 uh, uh, proceedings in India. So this is what G20, uh, the G20 presidency is about. It's about every nation, whenever it gets the opportunity to folk, to showcase, first of all, to take the lead, the initiative in, in deciding the focus areas and the priorities for this year. And then you showcase uh, whatever development you've done, whatever your strengths are, whatever your culture is, all of that. And you hold like 200 meetings over 50 different cities to bring people together. And at the end of the year, there's the big summit and that's what it is like, right? And there could be significant uh, tangible outcomes of all of these meetings. Uh, when you have so many meetings, so many people meeting together, ideas being, uh, being exchanged, cross-pollination of ideas, and good things come out of that quite often. So that's what it's all about. It's nothing to do with geopolitics. India is not going to get any geopolitical benefits from this. It's more about showcasing your progress, your development as a nation, that you that India is now a major power in the world. India is a strong, confident, vibrant nation with, with pride in its culture and a significant track record of scientific progress and development and technological development. And we can showcase all of this to the rest of the world. We would like the world to understand and realize that we are no longer the India of the 20th century. We are a very different nation today. So this is the opportunity for India to do that uh, in a variety of, of, of fields. And I am going to be involved in the, in the science uh, sector of that. So that's what it is about. It's not going to make India a stronger nation geopolitically and all that. But this is, in in a nutshell, what the G20 presidency is going to be about. So, yeah, that's what it is. Question two by Tejas. Why has Russia never had any colonies? Question credit, credit goes to Twitter. Yeah, so just a couple of hours ago, somebody asked me about this on Twitter. That why has Russia never had any colonies? Are you sure that Russia has never had any colonies? Yes. So to understand this, you have to study history and you have to look at the map. And as we know, the map is the most, uh, is one of the highlights of the Ask Abhijit show. So let's go to the map. <laughs> Where's the map? Here's the map. Take a look at Russia. So Russia is this nation 
this nation state that straddles the northern part of Eurasia. Yes, from Eastern Europe onwards, Moscow is in the eastern part of Europe, uh, east of Belarus and the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. Uh, Ukraine is a, is a well, we, we, we will not uh, touch upon Ukraine right now. It was part of the USSR, obviously. And then this entire enormous, vast expanse of territory. This is all Russia, all the way to the far east of Asia. It also includes this Sakhalin island. Yes, the, the, it was once believed to be a peninsula, but now we know it's an island. And it also includes uh, the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is here. Yes, the Kamchatka Peninsula. And the various Kuril Islands, where, where Russia has a territorial dispute with Japan. A simmering territorial dispute that goes back more than a century. So it's an enormous expanse of territory. Do you think this is all the territory, this entire territory is inhabited by Russian-speaking people? Is that what you think? Take a look at the map. Does it make any sense that this whole entire enormous, vast expanse of territory is inhabited by only Russian-speaking people? It's not the case. Firstly, understand the history of Russia. Who are the Russian people? The Russian people are, the, are, are Slavic people. They're the la largest uh, uh, linguistic, ethno-linguistic group within the Slavic peoples. Yes, there are other Slavic peoples also, where, where, for instance, in Serbia and so on. The Ukrainians are also Slavic people, whether they like it or not. It's the, the, that is the case, right? And the largest Slavic group is the Russians. The Russians are, their origin lies in the Kievan Rus about a thousand years ago. Right, uh, so I'll not go deep into history, but uh, the Slavs are uh, in Roman records nearly two thousand years back. Uh, a Slavic ethnic group is is attested in Roman records nearly two thousand years back. If I if my memory serves me right, and um, the history of the Kievan Rus people goes back about a thousand years. Uh, the, their leaders were actually Vikings. Yeah, <laughs> the the Varangians. Um, I may be mixing a couple of things up, but you can look it up if you're interested. So the history of the of the Rus people, the Russian people, goes back about a thousand years. Their actual original capital was Kiev. Yes, most, and then there was this period, uh, which uh, essentially was the Russians coming under the Mongol yoke. After the death of the great uh, conqueror Sri Chinggis Khan, his sons decided to conquer territory just for the heck of conquering. Yeah, and then Russia came under the yoke of the Mongols, led by their great general, the 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 great Mongol general Tsubodai the Valiant, who began his career career under Chinggis Khan, and later on uh, he. He uh, served the second great Mongol Khan, Ogodai. So the Russians came under the Mongol yoke. It was a very tough time for them. Yes. And then uh, the Mongol Empire disintegrated uh, rather soon, sooner than uh, one would have expected. But that's what happened. Then eventually Moscovy became a thing. And then the Russian Empire became a thing. I'm, I'm really doing a fast forward of a very large period of history. But then you had this period of Russian expansion. So... During the time, essentially, when the Europeans, the rest of the Europeans were, were destroying and colonizing Africa and the Americas and mainly India, where most of the wealth came from, at that time, the Russians were expanding eastwards, further eastwards, further eastwards. So if you look at the ethnic groups who live in, in, in the eastern non-European part of Russia, you have non-Slavic people who live here. Uh, 
you have the the turkic origin tatar people the tatars and there was a large long lengthy period of conflict between the invading russians and the indigenous uh, tatar people of of what is now of of siberia essentially a long extended protracted period of conflict between the invaders and the people who were defending their homeland the 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 tatars the tatars are are are, are turkic people yeah today it's they are all intermingled with the slavic peoples and all that and today i i suppose they most of them speak uh, russian as either a primary language or a secondary language um then you have the people of tuva then you have the mongolic M- mongol origin people of russia and you have various tungusic peoples and all that even the ainu people north of manchuria and and in the sakhalin region the the kamchatka region and all that uh, you have inuit origin people as well so these are all conquered territories right this enormous territory was all conquered by an expansionist russian empire and the russian empire even conquered alaska by the way and then they sold it uh, in the middle of the 19th century to the americans because of various geopolitical pressures they were facing from the from their conflict from their ongoing conflict with the british empire in central asia the crimean war all that yeah you can read that it's it's a very complex uh, history that we are dealing with over here the truth is the russians did not have colonies the russians simply conquered this enormous expanse of territory what's a colony india was a colony of the uk of of the british of the english so britain is all the way over here this island west of europe this island of the atlantic ocean and they conquered india and they put in uh, the setup a government over here an invasive oppressive uh, occupying force that that uh, administered india by force forcibly and extracted every last bit of of value out of india that is called colonization and a similar thing happened in various parts of africa various parts uh, of uh, various european uh, kingdoms and and empires and and uh, nations colonized various parts of africa africa was divided up between them and they all proceeded to extract everything of value out of africa and a similar thing happened in the americas as well of course in the in the americas you had settler colonialism yes which means that the europeans actually conquered this territory and settled down and and genocided the natives yes we, that's a whole different part of history and a similar thing happened in south america i mean in argentina where are the natives today none survive what about chile where are the natives hardly any any survive at all in brazil also the the real natives are all you know oppressed and all that it's a, it's a, it's a very sad and and uh, terrible history so that is settler colonialism you take you you conquer a territory you settle your own people there and you essentially marginalize the inhabitants who who are native to the land that is settler colonialism so when you talk about russia this entire enormous expanse of territory that's settler colonialism of course today in much of eurasia the eurasian part of russia the uh, the pr- principal ethnic groups that you will find will probably be of tatar origin or tungusic origin of or ainu origin or tuvan origin and, and various other groups but they all come under the yoke of russian culture and the russian language so the russian language is is the official language and so on it's it's quite complex the whole scenario but all of this is conquered territory it is non russian territory non slavic territory 
Yeah, it has all been conquered reasonably recently. So the Russians are no uh, strangers to colonization and what they have done in, in the Eurasian part of Russia, the Asia Asiatic part of present-day Russia is settler colonialism. Yeah. So, and the easternmost great city is Vladivostok, just north of North Korea. It is a port city that freezes in the winter. Yeah. And uh, it's it's quite close to Japan. So, uh, so Russia and Japan have this simmering, ongoing territorial dispute that dates back more than a century, dates back to the Meiji Restoration and maybe even before that, if we go deeper into it. But that's the deal. So the question, I, I hope I've answered it. They <laughs> Most of today's Russia is non-Slavic territory that has been conquered by the Russian Empire. That's what it is. So Russia itself is no stranger to colonization, to settler colonization. And Russia itself, the present-day nation-state of Russia is the a successor of the USSR, which itself was a successor of the Russian Empire, under which was which was built by various uh, various uh, rulers like uh, Ivan the Terrible, uh, what was his name, uh, uh, Catherine the Great, and so on. I don't, uh, yeah, you know, uh, just a couple of names I can uh, tell you. There's, there's much more to it. Peter the Great, and so on. So that's what it is. So yes, the Russians also have had colonies. They also have indulged in colonization. They are actually not very different from from their European neighbors. Yeah, and and uh, if you want to know about about the uh, about uh, the Tatar people, for instance, let, let's do a, a quick Google search about the Tatars. Uh, you may have heard of those Russian siblings, tennis playing siblings, siblings, Marat. And Dinara, Marat and Dinara Safin. Yes. So both of them, Marat and Dinara Safin, they, they are siblings. Yes. Uh, they are tennis players. They have both been world number one. They have both been Grand Slam champions. I don't think uh, Dinara ever won an individual Grand Slam, Grand Slam title, but she won at least a doubles title, at least, if, I'm, if I can, if I remember correctly. And she was world number one, and her brother also was world number one. Uh, yeah. So yeah, obviously they don't they don't look very happy here. They must have lost a match or something. But yes, these two are these are siblings and these are Tatar. They they belong to the Tatar ethnicity. So there are many uh, Russian uh, people, prominent people who are Tatars. I believe another one is Alina Kabaeva. Alina Kabaeva, a, a gymnast. Yes. Uh, this gymnast, she also has, has a Turkic Tatar ethnicity, mixed ethnicity perhaps, but uh, definitely Tatar and so on. So that's the Tatar people who are a major ethnic group, a non-Slavic ethnic group within Russia. And they are a conquered people, by the way. They are a conquered people. They are originally Turkic. Yeah, so that's the deal. I hope I have answered the question. Daniel Nicholson says, you rightly predicted a Chinese misadventure along the LAC, Tawang. Do you see a possible two-front war, Western theater via Pakistan, in the near future, now that the US, China, and Pakistan's interests coincide like never before? If the US and China seek a bipolar world, China would, at least for now, wouldn't it be the perfect time to thwart India's rise? Look, if there is a conflict, an, an actual war, see, right now we have this uh, low, kind of, you could call it a low-intensity conflict along the northern India-Tibet border, right? At various parts of the border, the Chinese try to stir up trouble, do these incursions, the salami slicing tactics. That's what they keep on attempting to do and all that. And from time to time, you have clashes like what happened in Galwan, which was 
one of the worst clashes in a very long time in living memory. And of course, the more recent December 9 clash um, near Tawang, in which the in, in both the clashes, the Chinese came out worse, right? Uh, so this is what you would call a simmering border issue, a very low intensity conflict. It's not a war. But in case India and China actually do go to war, I expect that there will be a two-front war immediately. The moment India and China go to war, hypothetically, if it happens, the Pakistanis most likely will also try and stir up trouble. They also may try to uh, uh, do some kind of coordinated action along with the Chinese and maybe perhaps with US blessings. Yeah, Because uh, nobody wants India to, to become too strong, and too powerful. Uh, so I believe that if there is in the future a war between India and China, there most likely will be a simultaneous war between India and Pakistan as well. So what India needs to do is Pakistan, we have to be very clear about how we're going to deal with it. If Pakistan and India go to war for whatever reason, India has to ensure that the outcome of the war is decided within the first five minutes of the war. That's it. The outcome of any future India-Pakistan war, see, the, if there is a war between India and Pakistan in the future, it should be the final war between, in, between India and Pakistan. And India needs to ensure that the outcome of this war is decided within the first five minutes. That's it. I need, I need to say no more apart from that. Um, so yes, if the Chinese play some kind of mischief and there does occur an India-China war, most likely there will be a simultaneous India-Pakistan war as well. India needs to ensure we end the war within essentially the first five minutes. And it is very much within our capabilities to end the war, to, to, to make the outcome of the war a foregone conclusion within the first five minutes of the conflict. We have to be ready 24 by 7 for this eventuality. Um, so yes, once we do that, we can deal with the Chinese at our leisure. We have significant advantages in the Himalayas. The Chinese, whatever the so-called strengths are, they are nullified by the by the Himalayan terrain. They are, they are well physically not very um, very impressive specimens. First of all, the Chinese, yes, uh, as we can see uh, in all these videos that come out of of various clashes between the Indian and Chinese uh, forces, we cannot ever underestimate them. But we have significant advantages. Uh, so, yes, uh, if there is a war in the future, whenever it is, it's most likely going to be a two-front war. We have to ensure that the moment the Pakistanis decide to stir up trouble and, and you know initiate a conflict, it should be the last India-Pakistan conflict. And the outcome should be decided within the first five minutes of the conflict. That's it. Then we deal with China. And then the Chinese need to be taught a lesson. Because, see, China is... In, is a perennial threat for India, as long as it holds Tibet. Now, Tibet is is, a, is an issue that we can deal with in the future. I think, uh, so that's that's what it is. So the Americans would def definitely give their blessings for, for trouble with India, to the Pakistanis at least, yeah. So India needs to ensure that, uh, first of all, we don't want a conflict in the next 5-10 years. India needs to rise. Pakistan is now a vassal state of the US. The Chinese are their own they have their own agenda. So we need to find ways to counterbalance all of this. You know, we can counterbalance the Chinese with the Russians. The Russians also fear the Chinese. They also don't trust the Chinese. We need to utilize that to our advantage and work constructively together with Russia for our mutual benefit. Similarly, the Iranians don't are, are scared of China. Uh, I'm sorry, the Iranians, uh, they, they fear Pakistan at the, on their eastern border. 
a nuclear powered us vassal state at iran's border it's a nightmare for iran it's a nightmare so we need to leverage that as well against pakistan so these are the things we need to do but in the future if there is a war and it it turns into a two front war we know what to do and i'm sure the indian army knows more than me what needs to be done yeah so yeah that's the deal akhil says dear sir can the agni 5 rocket be used to propel satellites into space hmm. is the fuel that's used in the pslv the gslv etc and the agni missiles is the fuel different where it comes to these missiles and 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 the gslv pslv uh, family of rockets how are these rockets similar or different so first of all missiles are rockets yeah missiles follow the same uh, physics physics laws they operate on the same principles as a as as a commercial rocket does like the gslv or the pslv or or the or the saturn 5 missile or the or the spacex falcon missiles or the russian missiles uh, russian rockets or the chinese long march rockets these are all rockets so what we call missiles ballistic missiles they actually are nothing but rockets yeah but we call them missiles because they are it's 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 a techn, it's a terminology we use because those are the missiles are used for military purposes and what we call rockets are used for scientific and commercial and other purposes space exploration and things like that now what is the difference can the agni 5 missile the, the it's which is most likely an intercontinental ballistic missile can that missile be used to propel ro- satellites into space absolutely it can yes the question is why don't we do it then <laughs> right why why don't we use the, the these missiles the first of all we don't want the agni 5 missile to be very visible when you launch a pslv or gslv the whole world can see it it can be tracked all its flight uh, characteristics can be studied and all that we need the agni 5 and other ballistic missiles to remain under wraps and remain secret and whenever we test them we're going to do a low atmosphere you know uh, you're not, not a very not we're going to we're going to keep the altitude low and all that we're going to do certain things to to prevent the world from from knowing too much about it so that's number one so we can use missiles like the agni 5 to launch satellites to, to but we don't want to do that the other thing is that there is a difference in the fuel that's uh, for instance the the gslv and the pslv they will most likely have they are multiple stage rockets there will be a solid state somewhere in there but the main uh, cryogenic stage will be a liquid fuel stage there will also be a stage with with hypergolic fuels yes what are hyper, what is hypergolic fuel it's it's like two different chemical liquid chemicals that if you bring them together they will spontaneously ignite now liquid fuels have an advantage over solid fuels liquid fuels have a much higher specific impulse as compared to solid fuels liquid fuels are uh, engines that use liquid fuels are much more efficient they produce much more thrust than engines that use solid fuels the other thing about liquid fuels is that if you have a rocket that's that is that, is, that uses liquid fuels you can shut it down and restart it you can throttle it up you can throttle it down so you can you have much more uh, flexibility as to how you gonna use the rocket when you have a rocket with solid fuel you cannot shut it down you cannot restart it you cannot throttle it up you cannot throttle you cannot throttle it down once it is ignited it's going to stay ignited until the whole solid fuel is used up like in your firecrackers and all you have these rockets you once you ignite it it's gone it's it's not going to stop 
until the fuel is gone right so that's how it is so that's the difference between so so your ballistic missiles like the agni 5 etc they use solid fuels why do we use solid fuels for these missiles it's because we need to store these missiles for a long period of time maybe for years in canisters and all that you can't do that with liquid fuels but with solid fuels you can do that for instance if you have a rocket with which uses liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen that you cannot keep it in a container for years the container will will blow up yeah because metal suffers fatigue and these liquids are under high pressure and very low temperatures you have to maintain that at very low temperature it's not possible to do, to, to do that indefinitely yeah so these are the differences uh, so mainly and and in in a rocket like the PSLV or the GSLV or or even in a system like the space shuttle which is now retired you had a combination of liquid fuels and solid fuels for instance if you look at the space shuttle let's put the space shuttle on the screen space shuttle one second here is here it is you look at the space shuttle uh, this is the space shuttle you see that uh, the the main uh, bird the main uh, aircraft spacecraft is attached to this orange orangish enormous fuel tank and it has two rockets on the sides yes so the two rockets on the sides are boosters i I believe they, 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 they are ignited only for like 90 seconds or two minutes or so. These are solid fuel boosters. They provide a very quick and dirty thrust initially, and then they are jettisoned. And, and the main engines are also ignited at the, at the same time in the very beginning. And they use fuel, liquid fuel, from this enormous orange tank. So you have a system that uses solid as well as liquid fuels here. And similarly, in the GSLV, I believe there is a stage with... with uh, the GSLV has booster rockets as well, booster motors. I believe those are liquid-fueled uh, booster motors. But there is a solid fuel stage also, I believe, in the GSLV. If I'm not mistaken, uh, you, or maybe in the PSLV, I have not studied this in great depth, but that's how typically it works. So uh, a rocket can use multiple kinds, um, has multiple stages, and you could have a solid fuel stage as well. So that, I hope, explains the difference between solid-fueled rockets and liquid-fueled rockets. Uh, solid fuel rockets are solid fuel engines are typically used in military ballistic missiles because you need to store them for long periods of time you can certainly launch satellites with them but you don't want to do it because uh, first of all it's it's uh, it's more costly and secondly you want to keep that rocket that the missile all its characteristics under wraps you want to keep it classified you want to keep it secret you don't want the world to know much about it that's the reason why it is it is the way it is all right. Akhil Ganapati Nidhi says, cruise missile doesn't have unlimited range and no missile is nuclear powered. They just carry nuclear warheads or payload. I think this is in response to something I had said. And I, I had said that the Russians have a nuclear powered cruise missile that has un, essentially unlimited range. So in response to that, uh, my dear friend Akhil is saying that cruise missiles, Abhijit, don't have unlimited range and no missile in the world is nuclear powered please understand abhijit you're wrong <laughs> okay am i wrong <laughs> i i don't get this man let, let, let's let's do this um, um i'm gonna have to do it sorry here we are this is an article from 2018 russia reveals unstoppable nuclear Power, powered cruise missile 
Yes. Putin announced a new high-yield intercontinental range cruise missile purportedly capable of penetrating any missile defense system. Yes. What does it say here? It's a cruise missile which has essentially unlimited range. Read the article and it will tell you that it has essentially unlimited range. It is powered by a nuclear motor. All right. It is a nuclear powered missile. It is called the 9M730 Burevestnik. Yes, it's a Russian nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed cruise missile under development. It has an essentially unlimited range. And I also spoke, I think, about nuclear ramjets and all that. Yes, you can have a nuclear-powered ramjet engine. You can even have a nuclear-powered scramjet engine. I'm gonna not, not going to go into that right now. But there you are. So, my dear friend Akhil, you took the time to type this comment. It must have taken you 10, 20 seconds. In the same time, you could have done a Google search and, and disabused yourself of, of your notion that, they, this, they, that there are no unlimited range cruise missiles or nuclear-powered cruise missiles. I just don't get this attitude that so many people have, that what I know is the, is the ultimate truth. How can you be so certain about it? How long did it take me to, to, to show that, I, that uh, this actually is the case? This, unfortunately, you know, reminds me of what Bertrand Russell said. I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be disrespectful to Akhil. But the problem, <laughs> the problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always completely certain of themselves. And wiser people are full of doubts. So Akhil, my friend over here, is completely certain of himself that cruise missiles don't have unlimited range. And, and missiles can never be nuclear powered. How can you be so certain of yourself? A simple Google search, which takes hardly 5-10 seconds, will show you that it is indeed the case. I just don't get this attitude. I just don't understand how people have this attitude. It is so frustrating for me to see so many Indians, intelligent, educated Indians, who have these this attitude that I know everything. And if somebody tells me something which, which goes against what I believe, then that person is a fool. Why are people so close-minded? It's like I, I got my degree, now I, I, my education is done. I have nothing more to learn and the rest of my life I will go around spouting gyan to people. That's the kind of attitude many Indians have. And I see that all the time. I see it on Twitter. You tweet anything, there are 50 people who come and jump at you and say that you are, you're wrong, you're a fool, blah, 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 blah. Um, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Why are people so close-minded? Why are people so dogmatic? Why can't you be open to learning? Why can't you be open to the possibility that maybe you don't understand everything in the world? And maybe there is information out there that, out there that you have still not come across. Why be like this? I, I don't get it. It is really frustrating for me. And this is a brilliant example of, of that. It took me 10 seconds to debunk what this gentleman is saying. Really, really uh, frustrating for me to see this. Anyway, let's go somewhere else, talk about something else. Um, Daniel says, what are the geopolitical implications of Russia potentially cutting off gas supplies to Europe? Should the US-led West exert pressures beyond the Russian threshold? Germany not happy and all and so on and so forth. The geopolitical implication of Russia cutting off gas supplies to Europe is not that the Europeans will die of, 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 of freezing or anything. It's that Europe's economy is going to crash. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so if the Russians cut off all 
gas supplies to Europe, the Europeans will have no option but to acquire, but to but to purchase gas from the Americans from across the Atlantic Ocean. And they are doing that right now already. And the Americans are forcing the Europeans to pay three times the price that the Europeans were paying to Russia to, to Russia for the same amount of gas. So the Americans are es- essentially extorting incredible amounts of money out of Europe. Now, when energy becomes so incredibly expensive, first of all, it's going to cause incredible hardships to the ordinary man, woman and child, the families, the population. Their energy bills will essentially triple or quadruple. It's going to become unaffordable for some people to to warm their houses in the winter. In India, in in much of India, in the winter, you just wear a a sweater or or something like that. You don't don't need to heat your house. Unless you're in northern India, in in northern UP, Uttaranchal, Shimla, um, Arunachal Pradesh, Ladakh, etc. But in most, much of India, it's not necessary. In Europe, you essentially freeze to death if you don't have heating in the house. So it's going to be very tough for many Europeans to just afford to pay the bills, the, the, the heating bills. That's number one. Secondly, much of, not much of, but all the entirety of the European economy depends on energy. Germany, for instance, is the Europe is Europe's uh, industrial powerhouse. They manufacture all kinds of things. If you want to manufacture steel, if you want to manufacture cars, if you want to manufacture anything, you need large quantities of energy. You need electricity. You need energy. You want to melt metal and make steel, you need a huge amount of energy to do that. And if energy, if if the if your energy bills triple or quadruple, where are your profits going to come from? It's going to destroy Europe's economy. It's going to essentially de-industrialize Europe if this continues over, over three to five years. That's the problem. These are the geopolitical implications of Russia potentially cutting off gas supplies to Europe. The Russians could also cut off uranium supplies to, to various European nations. France, I think... Uh, 60%, I think, of its energy comes from nuclear power. Where is the uranium? <laughs> yeah, where does the uranium fuel, fuel come from? These are the problems. So it's going to essentially cripple Europe. It's going to cripple Europe's economy, its manufacturing and industrial uh, prowess. And it's it's going to essentially make Europe completely dependent on the Americans. Completely. Right now, at least they have their economy, they have their manufacturing base, they have their industrial base. Yes. Once that is crippled, what will they do? That's the thing. So that's the game that's being played. Um, Vladimir, does it say Vladimir? Uh, It says, Privet from Russia. Don't you think India should have long ago achieved the economic targets and should have crossed the $10 trillion mark? With Indians known to be the smartest in the world, where did Indian policies go wrong? Russian, uh, respect from my, to my Indian friends from Yekaterinburg, Russia. Privet, my friend. So what happened? Yes, it, it is true that Indians, Indians do have this. I mean, in the past, Indians had this reputation of being the smartest people in the world. Uh, the Japanese considered Indians to be the smartest in the world. The Chinese also did, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, so yes, Indians are very intelligent and smart people. Um, so what happened? What happened is that India had terrible leaders. 
Yeah. After 1940, what happened in 1947 is that power was transferred from one set of crooks to another set of crooks. The British who were occupying and ruling India for more than 200 years and they had totally destroyed and crushed India's economy. They then handed over power to a set of Indian Indians who essentially continued the same povertarian practices and policies that the British had instituted. The same system persisted. They did not try to reform the system, the system of oppression, the system of, 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 of the colonial system that the British had built. The same system still exists today. It's a deeply entrenched system because now Indians believe it is their own system. Yeah. And the leaders, let's take the example of the shining example of Shri, the great Mr. Jawaharlal Nehru. You know, India's economy was so badly broken that even if you had okay policies, not great policies, India's economy would have grown at least 10% a year because it was so badly broken. Just, just to restart it, the growth would have been 10% plus per year. Take the example of Japan. Japan was totally devastated by, by the Americans in World War II and see how rapidly they were able to emerge out of the ashes and re-industrialize themselves. India could have done a much better job. India had a certain amount of infrastructure already present, which the, the Japanese did not have. They had to rebuild everything from scratch. So it was terrible, terrible leadership that ensured that India remained incredibly poor until very recently. Now India is totally, slowly rising from the ashes now. And India is now becoming a significant power in the world. But this could have happened in 1947 itself. The process could have been set in motion in 1947 itself. It is the terrible leadership which the British put in place that ensured that India did not achieve all those economic targets. Yeah, Until the 1990s, India and China were in the same position economically. And the Chinese then took off. And India is now taking off. So we had the opportunity to do that in the 1940s, 1950s itself. And we lost this, these so many decades because of these terrible leaders who were not democratically elected by us. They were put into place and Indians were made to believe that these are your leaders and they represent you. They did not. Anyhow, so that's that's what happened, right? Huh, Karman Man says, why is Canada a prosperous nation even though it has only a population of 38 million souls. What are your thoughts on the JTF-2? It's said to be one of the most highly skilled special forces groups behind the Delta Squad in the British SAS. You know, every nation has its own special forces and all that. Uh, the Indonesians have their special force. The Russians have the Spitznats. Uh, the Br British have the SAS. The, the Americans have the Marines. The Indians have the Marcos and various other, other groups and so on. Every nation proclaims that our that it's Special forces are the best. So I don't think there's anything significantly special about the Canadian JTF2. Uh, I'm sure they are competent and they are highly skilled and all that, but so are the special forces of many other nations. So I don't I don't see anything special about the Canadian JTF2. I am sure they they specialize in certain things, which <laughs> all that. Now the other question is why is Canada a prosperous nation, even though it has a population of 38 million? Take a look at the map. Where is our map? Take a look at Canada. It lies north of the US. It is an enormous territory, larger than the US. 
So 38 million people occupy this enormous resource-rich territory, which has no geopolitical threats at all. It is um, a U.S. vassal state. It is under U.S. protection. It has no other threats of, of any kind. Yes. So no need to maintain a large army, a large, uh, large armed force. No need to do any of that. Enormous amounts of territory, all kinds of resources, every resource you can hope to have. So why will it not be prosperous? And the fewer people you have, the more prosperous you are, of course. Of course, if you have just 20 people, it's not going to work out. But if you have 38 million, that's plenty to, to, you know, to build as much prosperity as you want. So it's all about the territory, the resources and the lack of threats. That's why Canada is so prosperous. Yeah, so, so that's the reason. It's, it's very simple. Jayant Verma says, I have watched Avatar way back in 2010, 2011. I hated most of the humans in the Avatar movie because all they do is plunder resources and do other atrocities. Yes, that's that's the storyline. Jake Sully is the human who becomes a blue guy. Yeah. Recently, I watched Avatar 2. The storyline is simple, but I realized that the West is actually telling their own story. The humans in the Avatar movies are the Western nations and the indigenous blue people, the Navi race, are all the other oppressed people of Earth. The South Americans, the North American indigenous people, the Africans, the Asians in Australia. Well, you have realized something very interesting. If you watch Avatar 1, which I watched when it first came out, um, it is essentially a white savior movie. If you watch uh, movies like The Last Samurai, in all these movies, there's this white guy who goes to a foreign culture and there are elements of that foreign culture that are really nice, and very, very uh, noble and all that. But eventually the, it, it is shown that the white guy has something superior about him and he eventually ends up saving, saving the day. So so this is, this is called the white savior trope in, in Western movies. So Avatar essentially is a white savior movie. I, I'm sure I can think of many other examples, but I give you one, The Last Samurai. Um, the Last of the Mohicans also could be possibly a white savior movie. Uh, so Avatar is like that. And yes, in the Avatar movie part one, the humans are the invasive species on this wonderful uh, moon called Pandora, where the natives, they live in, in harmony with nature. Yeah, they, they worship, they, they, there's no worship system as such shown, but they kind of worship nature itself in the form of, what they what do they call it, Eva or something. Yeah, they worship nature, the, the great mother, they call it uh, the, the, the divine feminine and these invaders, the white guys. So that's how it is. And Avatar 2 is also about veiling and all that. I recently saw that. Yeah, it's, yeah. So essentially, you are right. James Cameron has made these movies along those lines that the humans that are depicted in the Avatar movies, are they represent the uh, European colonialists. And the blue guys, the blue people, the, the, spe the indigenous species, they represent all the various uh, non-white native peoples of Earth. Now, if you watch the Avatar movies, you will see some people who have characteristics of, uh, of African races in India, uh, on, on earth, yes. Some people speak with with a supposedly African accent and all that. Uh, some of the elements of culture that are depicted among the Navi are similar to the uh, Native American culture, right? 
yes and uh, some of some of the cultural elements in the next in the second movie remind you of polynesian culture or maori culture right the the tattoos on the face and the uh, living uh, living in in harmony with the ocean and all that but they will never show any elements of indian culture yeah you watch any hollywood movie western movie they will kind of uh, tolerate and uh, to some extent respect various indigenous cultures like if you watch the the wakanda forever movie they are extolling the glories of of indigenous african culture yes there are various movies in which they they show that native american culture is wonderful if you watch moana they they uh, kind of celebrate polynesian culture samoan culture all that have you ever seen a western movie a hollywood movie english speaking movie english language movie in which they celebrate indian culture you will never see that they only celebrate the culture the cultures of the peoples they have defeated do you understand that they only celebrate the culture of the peoples they have defeated the defeated people indians are not defeated yes we were colonized by them but we have risen again and we are rising so they will not celebrate our our culture racism is okay in certain cases right now it's okay to be racist against the russians and it's perfectly okay to be hindu phobic it's perfectly okay to be openly hindu phobic in in american academia in in english speaking and western academia perfectly fine but you can't be something else phobic but you can be hindu phobic this is the hypocrisy of the west and i i i need you all to realize this right so avatar is a good example it's a, it's a good example so so nice of jayant to bring the, to to ask this question Raghavendra says just check what einstein thought of indians and chinese so i think this is in response to one of the one of the clips that i put that i had put out about israel the india israel relationship and indians lots of indians worship israel blindly for whatever reason and uh, so so raghavendra says just check what einstein thought of the indians and the chinese so first of all einstein was a jewish person for sure he was not israeli he was offered the prime ministership of israel i believe once and i think he, he he refused that he was definitely a jewish person he was born in germany he then became a swiss citizen for some time and then he moved to the us to princeton so that that's the kind of life he had he was a jewish person he could have become an israeli citizen if he wanted he could have become the prime minister of israel if he wanted uh so the question is what did he think of indians and chinese is a good question you ask yes uh let's find out what einstein thought of the indians and the chinese yes yes let's see uh einstein's travel diaries reveal shocking xenophobia this is from a british uh publication called the guardian it's it's always been anti india but here it is so private journals kept by the scientist and humanitarian icon show prejudiced attitudes towards the people he met while traveling in asia so i don't think he ever came to india but he did uh, pass through sri lanka and so the attitudes towards the people of sri lanka will be the same as the attitudes towards indians I, at that time i believe that he thought of the sri lankans as indians because sri lankans of course ethnically culturally are indian uh, so what is he right in china the man who famously once described racism as a disease of white people describes the industrious filthy obtuse people he observes he knows how the chinese don't sit on benches while eating but squat like europeans do when they relieve themselves out in the leafy woods even the children are spiritless and look obtuse yes after earlier writing about the 
abundance of offspring and the fecundity of the Chinese, he goes on to say, it would be a pity if these Chinese supplant all other races. For the likes of us, the mere thought is unspeakably dreary. Yes? So that's what he thought about the Chinese. Uh, what does he say? Um, he went through various nations. Uh, he... He, saw, he wrote about the Chinese that even those reduced to working like horses never give the impression of conscious suffering. Means the Chinese essentially enjoy suffering. A peculiar herd-like nation, often more like automatons, robots than people. Uh, I noticed how little difference there is between men and women. Really? Albert Einstein, what are you saying? And I don't understand what kind of fatal attraction Chinese women possess, which enthralls the corresponding men to such an extent that they are incapable of defending themselves against the formidable blessing of offspring. <laughs> Incredible, yeah? In Colombo, in Ceylon, in Sri Lanka, Einstein writes of how the locals, locals live in great filth and considerable stench at ground level, adding that they do little and need little. The simple economic cycle of life. What about the Japanese? Uh, <clears throat> Japanese, unostentatious, decent, altogether very appealing, pure souls, etc. Um, and so on and so forth. He is unable to understand how Chinese men find their women sufficiently attractive to have offspring with them. That's incredible. So racist and dehumanizing and so on. Yeah. So that's what he wrote over here. And there's more. Did Einstein believe that Indians were stupid? His diaries suggest so. Uh, what did he say? What did he say? Indians, Einstein believed, seemed to have believed, were biologically inferior and were hampered by the subcontinent's climate that prevented them from thinking backward or forward by more than a quarter of an hour. Einstein believed that Indians are incapable of thinking forward or backward by more than a quarter of an hour. Incredible, yeah? And this is the guy who attached his name to the Bose statistics. They are now called Bose-Einstein statistics, yeah? Mm. Einstein uh, came across Indians in Colombo during his Far East voyage and he mentioned their existence by referring to their primitive lives. Uh, an attitude that uh, all, all that, yeah, geographical determinism and the Indians' alleged intellectual inferiority. Einstein attributes the alleged stoicism of the Indians he encounters to geographical determination by asking, wouldn't we too in this climate become like the Indians? So Einstein, a Jew who was forced to flee Nazi Germany in the face of anti-Semitic persecution uh, and so on, he may have changed his views on race later in life. He may or may not, we don't know. He has shown no, <laughs> uh, no evidence of having done that. Yeah. So, um, yes, so that is indeed what Einstein thought of the non-white people, the Indians, the Chinese. I'm, I'm not sure what he said about the Africans. I have not gone into that. I, I'm a little scared to look into that, actually. Yeah. So, yes, Einstein, who is considered to be a humanitarian, a humanitarian icon, uh, I, 
I'm sure he did not win the Nobel Peace Prize, but uh, he is considered to be a kind of a saint because he opposed the the Nobel uh, the 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 atomic bomb which he helped develop and all that. But yeah, there you are. He clearly, if you read his diaries, there is clear evidence of of racist uh, attitudes and beliefs, and the belief that Indians are inferior and primitive and incapable of thinking forward or backward by more than a quarter of an hour, and the Chinese also are unattractive, and the women are very hardly different from men and god knows what else yes yes so like i have said the see first of all racism i am sure it's prevalent in almost all ethnicities all nations and all that so we should not take someone like einstein to be representative of the average jewish person i am sure there are lots of jewish people who are not racist i am sure there are lots of jewish people who don't have prejudicial attitudes towards non white people Uh, the majority of the jews are actually non white but we know what happens in israel and so on. let's go not going to that right now but yes uh, to this point it is indeed true that einstein was had these deeply racist attitudes towards the people of india and china that is uh, the sad truth this is a long question ajay says uh, about the mrfa program multi role fighter aircraft Do you think that instead of buying all 114 fighters of the same type, we should diversify the deal and buy, say, 38 fighters of the Rafale, 38 F-21s, 35 Su-35s, 38 Su-35s? Recent events have shown that it's not wise to totally rely only on one country for anything, or is diversifying too expensive in terms of maintenance? I'm asking the 78th time, so hopefully it will get accepted. Okay. Um, when you see india has how many different kinds of fighter planes does india have we have the almost obsolete definitely obsolete mig 21s we have mig 29s we had other migs also in the past we have the 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 jaguar fighter plane we have the mirage 2000 we have the dassault rafale we have the sukhoi 35 we have a whole menagerie a whole zoo of various, various different kinds of aircraft we also have the 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 poseidon aircraft the boeing poseidon aircraft we have the the reaper drones or or some variant of that that i spoke about yesterday we have a variety of russian transport planes american transport planes it's an incredible di- incredible diversity it's a, it's a whole menagerie of aircraft that we have in the armed forces it is a logistical nightmare to procure spare parts and to have engineers and mechanics who are who specialize in the maintenance and repair of one kind of aircraft if you have 17 different kinds of aircraft you have to have different 17 different types of mechanics who specializes in this one aircraft you can't have one mechanic who does everything it doesn't work like that it is a nightmare to have lots of different kinds of aircraft ideally we should have our own indigenously manufactured aircraft so that you know it it, it keeps things simple Now, in case we go ahead with the MRFA program, we should not diversify. It will be a it will be an additional nightmare. We should buy only one type of aircraft. Keep things simple so that we can procure the spares from one place only. Hopefully, manufacture the spares spares in house if 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 possible. Yeah. So that's how it should be. It we it is it is it doesn't make any sense logically to 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 split it up into like four or five different segments. and first of all this is the f21 is never going to be sold to india the americans won't ever do that the rafale i think see the you cannot really trust the americans 
with spare parts you, when they feel like they may they may cut off spare parts to you or they may even remotely disable the aircraft they have done this in the past to various people they have done it even to their to their five eyes partner in australia in the 1980s late 80s they sold uh, fa18 fighter planes to the australians and when the australians acquired the fighter planes they, they re- realized that the fighter planes are essentially disabled they cannot acquire targets that the australians want them to acquire they will only acquire targets lock on to targets the americans allow them to lock on to it was a nightmare for the australians it's only in the 2000s more than 20 years after they acquired the aircraft that they were able to circumvent this issue so you cannot trust the americans with this the russians have never, have never done that to india um so maybe a russian plane if the russians have a good one right now it doesn't look like they have one so most likely i would say that we should go for the rafal and buy if we are going to buy a bunch of 114 planes maybe we should just buy by the rafal because the rafal is one of the best fourth generation fighter out there it is a multi role fighter plane it's a very very capable fighter plane and the french overall are more reliable and trustworthy than the americans yeah and they obviously would like to break free of the shackles that they are under the vasala the vasal state shackles uh, of the us so yeah so i would i would say that it makes eminent sense to just buy one type of aircraft the mrfa program okay descendant of rigvedic clans says please do talk about rigvedic clans in detail you have not explained this topic in detail all right let's talk about rigvedic clans now how do we talk about rigvedic clans from what period we have to since we are talking about the rigveda let's talk about one of the oldest events that's that's mentioned in the rigveda which is uh, the first known geopolitical conflict the first known war it's called a battle the battle of the 10 kings so let's take a look at what shrikant talagiri has written about this because his writings are really good and it's it's a great way of taking a look at this so what did shri what has shrikant talagiri written about this and it's it's in his writings that we can uh, find a listing of the various rigvedic clans so here we are the battle of the 10 kings india's uh, the world's earliest uh, record of a historical battle and its international repercussions so uh, so there's a whole preliminary uh, explanation of various things over here pre buddhist india obviously it's pre buddhist india and all that uh, so there are various uh, battles you know the the hariyupiya uh, battle the battles of sudas 1 2 etc let's talk about the opponents that sudas that king sudas had so uh, first of all who was sudas um Sudas was a Bharata Puru king. He belonged to the Bharata Puru clan. They lived mainly in the Kurukshetra area of Haryana. Uh, Talagiri uses the term tribe, which is so wrong. These are not tribes; these are, these are clans. A tribe is a small grouping of primitive humans who lived, who lives in isolation from hum, other human society. The Rigvedic clans were not tribes; they were clans. So this is a wrong term that he has used, but that's fine. his scholarship is excellent apart from this one um, flaw that we find so uh, the so so king sudas was the was the king of the bharata puru clan now who are the opponents that he was up against let's take a look at that the eastern opponents of sudas so um, the enemies in the eastern battles are the bheda clan the ajas the sigrus and the yakshus devaka manyamana 
the turvasa clan the yakshu clan and the matsya clan the matsya later became a great mahajanapada right the matsya mahajanapada <clears throat> uh and the purus as well so that's one bunch of eastern clans the, now let's take a bunch, look at a different uh, set of eastern clans of the rigvedic uh, era the turvasas the yadus the yakshus um the matsyas the ajas the sigrus in the bheda and the devaka manyamana so these are the names that are mentioned over here these are people who lived in the east of india clans that lived in the east of india in the rigvedic age the western opponents of kings das the dasas the prithus or the parthavas the parshus or the parshvas yes or the simyus the brigus the druhus the alinas the pakhtas the bhalanas the shivas the vishanins kavi chayamana vaikarnas kavasa druhyu these are a bunch of western clans there are more the shimyu the dasa the vaikarna these are mainly in present day afghanistan you have the vishanin which became the nuristani or the pishachin clan the pakhtun or the pakhta clan who are the ancestors of today's pakhtuns the bhalana clan the prithu or parthwa clan the parshu or the parshwa clan the madra clan uh then we have the shiva clan the dasa clan the alina and the shimyu clan we also have the brigus the dasa the alinas who became the hellenic peoples the brigus became the brigus became the parthian the the, the the phrygians uh the the dasa became the dacians the shimyu kaosa kawi kawi but the avastan the, the later iranians and so on do we have more western clans the the sakas and all that that's later on and so on so then you have a description of the, of the battle let's take a look at this different article um so yeah so it's a whole listing of clans that were expelled out of india as a result of this battle the shimyu the dasa the vishanin the pakta who became the pakhtuns the bhalana who became the bolan or baluchi people the parthwa who became the parthians of later times the parshwa who were the ancestors of the persians yes the madra or the media or the medians the shiva or the khwarezmians the dasa who are the high that are mentioned in various european uh, texts the alina or the alans the ancestors of the iberian peoples spanish peoples the shimyu or the sarmatians the brigu or the or the phrygians the dasa or the dacians the alina who are the ancestors of the, of the hellenic people the greeks the shimyu and so on so this is a listing of the various clans that took part in the the great war that is known as the battle of the 10 kings there are obviously lots of other clans that, are, that did not participate in the war but i i would say that this gives us a a good example of the number of clans we had in northern and western india and also parts of eastern eastern india and the kind of diversity that we had and this was a major geopolitical event that essentially shaped the the a lot of the subsequent history of eurasia because all of these various clans they had to escape and go into exile out of india permanently and they went essentially westwards and northwards and they populated uh Persia they populated Greece they populated the Balkans they populated the 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 
Central Asian regions and so on and so forth, they essentially they essentially spread Indo-European language and culture across Eurasia, west and north of India. So that is in brief about uh, some of the Rig Vedic clans. I cannot go into great detail because then it will take the, <laughs> a much longer uh, session. But yeah, that I hope gives uh, some kind of, throws some kind of light on this. Okay, Akhanda Bharat says, um, oh yes, thank you, sir. Uh, how advanced was Queen Vishpala's prosthetic leg from the Rig Veda? Do you believe high-tech prosthetic limbs existed in Bharat thousands of years ago? Let me answer the second part of the question first. Do I believe high-tech prosthetic limbs existed in Bharat thousands of years ago? I don't think so. I don't think we had articulating limbs with with you know fingers with artificial fingers that you could use like in like in the Terminator movies or or various other science fiction movies and all. I don't think there were high tech advanced prosthetic limbs in India with the uh, mechanical elements and computer computerized elements. No, absolutely not. This is thousands of years ago. We why do I say this? Because there is no evidence of it. You show me evidence from the archaeological record, I will change my opinion. Because I have never seen any evidence of any such thing. That's why I say that it is, it is highly unlikely that you had high-tech prosthetic limbs thousands of years ago in India, in Bharat, right? Now the question is, how advanced was Queen Vishpala's prosthetic leg from the, from the Rig Veda? So let's take a look at what the Rig Veda has to say about this. Yeah? So... Uh, when it comes to the Rig Veda, it's uh, Vishpala, Queen Vishpala is, is mentioned in a number of hymns. Let's put that on the screen. This is an English translation of the Rig Veda. This is hymn number 116, the Ashwins. If you look at uh, the 15th verse or stanza, whatever you want to call it, it says, Straight ye gave, ye gave Vishpala a leg of iron, that she might move what time the conflict opened. So it mentions a leg of iron. It doesn't go into detail in describing what this leg of iron looked like. It says that Vishpala was given a leg of iron so that she could move when the conflict happened, which means that she was able to resume the conflict and she was able to fight with this uh, iron leg. It's, it's, it's called a leg of iron. Let's see what this section of the Rig Veda says, this is 118, him 118 Ashwins. It says, the quail from her great misery ye delivered and a new leg for Vishpala provided. So it says a new leg. Over here it doesn't say iron leg, it says a new leg. Now let's take a look at uh, hymn number 39 Ashwins. It says, ye rescued Vandana and raised him from the pit and in a moment gave Vishpala power to move, which means that she was incapacitated because she lost a leg and then she was given the power to move. So it doesn't go into any specifics as to what kind of prosthetic limb it was. All it tells us is that she was given an iron leg. That's all we know. Yes? So that's what we know, that's the evidence that we have from the text itself, from the Rig Veda itself. Of course, there are different various translations. You can take a look at the various translations that we have. There are three, four different English translations. There are translations into, into Hindi and various other languages. If you want to go deep into it, you can take a deep dive and take a look at what it says in all these various different translations. But what it tells you is that she was given an iron leg and she was able to go back into battle and she was able to move again. That's all it tells you. 
it doesn't tell you that it was a fully articulated articulating limb or it was made of carbon fiber with with uh, artificial intelligence or any such thing it says it was an iron limb that's all we know and we have to go by the evidence that's it that's the answer okay tejas says in old times how did kings and administrators administrators get updates on things that were happening in their kingdoms as india is a huge country and modes of transport were slow and traveling across india must have taken months and months and months interesting question how did um how were communications done in ancient india let's say let's talk about uh, 2000 years ago during the uh, kushan times or maybe 2500 years ago during the mauryan times how were communications done how did kings and administrators get get updates as to what was happening in far off distant parts of their empire kingdom let's take a look at the map of india to get a better idea of what we are talking about so here we have india now let's take the example of of uh, emperor ashok for instance he was one of our greatest emperors he when he was a prince not yet the emperor he was the governor of of gandhar his father had appointed prince ashok as the emperor of gandhar gandhar is essentially the uh, pakistan afghanistan region yeah uh, during the the kushan times peshawar was one of the capitals of india peshawar is essentially part of gandhar and kabul is the main capital it was then called kapisa or something it was also the capital of gandhar so most likely ashoka was the governor in the in one of these places either peshawar or kabul or whatever was the then capital of gandhar and his father obviously was in patliputra which is present day patna what is the difference the, the the distance between let's say patna and kabul let us see from here to here that's 1820 kilometers in a straight line as the crow flies yes but obviously if you want to travel from kabul to patna patliputra you can't travel in a straight line so it's going to be more like 2500 kilometers now in those days we had these great highways the uttar patha the dakshin patha and all that these ancient great highways that that uh, connected various parts of india so you could travel along the great uttarapath from patliputra all the way to gandhar and that's what typically you would do so let's say the distance is by road 2 and a half thousand kilometers now let's say uh, prince ashok wants to send a message a report a status report let's say to his father bindusar in patliputra how long will this take so let's say you have a distance of 2 and a half thousand kilometers and let's say it's an urgent message so you send a messenger on a horse and along the uttarapatha you will have these imperial rest houses way stations where you will get fresh horses and let's say ashok tells the messenger don't stop until you reach my father and and send this message now how fast does a horse typically run let's let's assume roughly it's it's 40 kilometers per hour yeah and let's say that the uh, that the messenger has access to fresh horses every 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 2 hours let's say so the horse will travel let's say assume at at, at 40 kilometers per hour throughout and let's say the messenger travels on his horse 10 hours per day so in a day he's going to be able to cover 400 kilometers along the uttarapath 
400 times 5 is 2000. So it will take about 6 days, 6, 6.5 days for the messenger on an urgent errand to travel from Kabul to Patliputra. I am obviously oversimplifying, but this is a back of the envelope, rough calculation, which gives us a good idea of how things would have been. So if the guy travels on his horse with access to fresh horses, and if he travels at 40 kilometers per hour, 10 hours a day, then the guy will be able to travel from Kabul to Patliputra in less than a week's time. Yeah. And for redundancy, you send three different messengers. In case one of them is not able to do for, to, to travel very fast, the other guys will do it. So, clearly, it will not take months and months and months to send messages across India, across the entire enormous expanse of India. From Gandhar to Patliputra, within a week, you can send a message. And similarly, from Patliputra to, to maybe southern India or wherever else. So, it was not that slow. Yeah, and that's why uh, people, uh, you know, great emperors were able to have these enormous kingdoms in India. Chandragupta had a large em empire. Ashok had the largest. Uh, he he uh, took the Mauryan Empire to its largest extent. That's what Ashoka did. Later, Kanishka had an even larger empire, which which uh, touched the shores of the Caspian Sea and the Aral Sea. It also incorporated large parts of Xinjiang. Yes, um, and obviously. Uh, uh, Gandhar and so on. So the, the, there also you would have proper systems of transportation and communication. Then you had the Gupta emperors, you had Lalitaditya Muktapida who had a large empire and all that. So all these empires would have had proper systems of communications. And I would say that within the subcontinent from Gandhar to Patliputra and from north to south, it would not take more than, more than a week for, for information to flow from one ex, for, from one extremity to another. So that's how it was done. It would typically be on horseback. You would have dedicated messengers, couriers, who, and you would have these long highways, the Uttarapatha, the Dakshinpatha, etc., and various other networks of roads and highways. And you would have imperial way stations along the way where you would get fresh horses on demand and so on. And the highways would be very well maintained. Yeah. So the so-called Grand Trunk Road, which uh, Sher Shah Suri is alleged to have built, it was not he who built it. He simply refurbished the Uttarapatha that was in existence for thousands of years. <clears throat> so that's how it was done. So it did not take months. It would take hardly a week for messages to go across. All right. <clears throat> Arpit says, I have seen many times that, that Latin Americans, especially in Mexico and so on, in videos and documentaries, that the native people who live there still look somewhat like the people from the region of Southeast Asia, of Eastern Asia. Do you think there could be a possibility of migration between these regions in the past? Yes, definitely, 100%. If you look at the genetics of the people of, of, of between the... If you look at the genetics of the Native American peoples, whether it is in North America or South America, there is a significant affinity, a significant um, commonality between them and the people of Eastern Asia. For instance, if you look at uh, the Inuit people, let's go to the map. So the Inuit people are also, or supposedly the Eskimo people, the so-called Eskimo people who are now called the Inuit people. They live in Alaska, in Northern Canada, even in Greenland, etc., these people, they are very similar genetically to, to the people of, of Siberia and Mongolia. It is very well known. It is established genetically. And again, if you look at the people of, 
if you look at the native people of north america and even southern america most of them they have this this appearance that is that is reminiscent of the eastern asian people the siberian people the the tungusic people the ainu people the japanese people the mongolic people the han to some extent the han people as well it's because of migrations yeah so the dominant theory is that about 13000 years before today when the earth was in the grip of the ice age at that time the the bering strait was frozen and over here also you the the sea was frozen across so it was just a matter of walking across so humans were able to walk across from siberia into north america and then over several millennia they migrated downwards southwards and eventually made their way into south america and all that so that is the dominant theory of how the americas were populated so clearly there is a migration from eastern asia northeastern asia but now uh, new things have come to light there there they have found uh, re- remains of ancient humans in south america that date back more than 100000 years so that it's it's so that becomes clear so it becomes clear that there have been multiple waves of migration into the americas and the story may not be so simple and so linear the way it is made out to be we also have the mystery of the olmecs yeah let's take a look at that the olmec olmec heads so so the olmec heads are found mainly in uh, mexico the region of mexico if i'm not mistaken these are enormous colossal heads if you can see you can see how large the head is compared with with human beings yes and if you look at the facial features of all these olmec heads they don't look eastern asian they look african yes if you look at these the facial features of these enormous statues these these heads it's very apparent that these represent african facial features not eastern asian facial features uh so it it raises the question as to who these people were did people migrate from africa into these places into into south america and leave behind these mysterious uh gigantic carvings so uh the story is not quite clear uh and the, the, there has been deliberate neglect of the history of of the native american people because because we know that america whether it's north america or south america it's stolen land it has been stolen by the europeans they have essentially wiped out the natives and they have taken over the territory as their own settler colonialism and genocide colonialism so they don't want to go deep into the history of the native american people because then it will become very clear that the natives are the true true uh, owners and custodians of the land and they have the real claim to the land so the the the, the policy is let's let's not dig deep into this in north america in the us especially they have destroyed dozens maybe hundreds of native american archaeological sites just flattened them very few such sites actually remain you know in south america we have lots of sites and uh, the, the situation is different there but uh, there also there is the same overall status so yeah that's that's a, that's a deal the story may be quite complex but there is clear that it is clear that there there were waves of migrations at least one wave of migration from eastern asia into the americas and that's why so many native american people in mexico in peru in chile etc <clears throat> maybe in brazil as well and definitely in in northern north america as well the inuit people the eskimo people uh, the aleutian people etc they all look like eastern asian that's that's the reason why it is so
Okay, Bapan Sarkar says, did ancient India trade more with Southeast Asia than in the Arabian Sea? First of all, it's not the Arabian Sea. It's, it was called, even the Arabs called it the Indian, Indian Sea. Yeah. Uh, so the correct name of the so-called Arabian Sea is actually the, the we could, you could call it the Sea of Saurashtra perhaps. So anyway, did India trade more in Southeast Asia than in what is called here the Arabian Sea? Because Indian culture seems to have spread primarily through trade in southeast asia but didn't but the same doesn't happen doesn't didn't happen in the arabian peninsula or the coastal regions of eastern africa and madagascar what's my take on this uh, <clears throat> so if you look at the culture of southeast asia whether it is the whether it is indonesia java sumatra etc whether it is uh, thailand whether it's myanmar whether it is uh, cambodia vietnam laos etc even if you talk about uh, even if you talk about china even if you talk about uh, korea and japan there are very visible very very unmistakable elements of indian culture that still survive yes all across the region southeast asia eastern asia mongolia china everywhere if you go westwards, you don't see much of that. If you go to Eastern Africa, you will see that the cuisine in Kenya, in Mozambique, in Tanzania, Somalia, it looks very Indian. They use the same spices, they use turmeric, they use the same Indian spices. The food smells very Indian. It looks and tastes very Indian. But it also has distinctive African elements. If you look at the the textiles that ladies wear in Tanzania, Kenya, Somalia, those textiles are very strikingly similar to the textiles that, that used to be manufactured in Gujarat in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, centuries. You know, um, If you look at the style of dressing, the, the, the dressing style of ladies in, in, in let's say, Somalia. Uh, Somalia ladies, uh, what, traditional dress let's see what it looks like this is the ladies traditional dress in somalia this is the sari you could be forgiven for thinking that this is a form of the sari um what about ethiopia ethiopia okay, ethiopian dress is not that it is more semitic or something but uh, you do see some some elements of the sari or Indian dress in there as well. Uh, and the people of Ethiopia look kind of Indian. The people of Somalia also look kind of Indian. So, so then what's the deal, right? That's the question. Uh, <clears throat> so going back to the map once again, it is known that Indians have had a presence in Africa that dates back at least 4,000 years. Because of the presence of Zebu cattle, the Indian origin cattle, which uh, is they 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 are they are known to have existed in Egypt, uh, for, for dating back at least two thousand BC and so on. So Indians have had a very long presence in Eastern Africa, and you see that in the culture in Eastern Africa. You see that in the music of Somalia and uh, in other various parts of Eastern Africa. You see it in the textiles, the dressing style, the cuisine, all these things. But so that's it. It's so the Indian culture is present, but it's like an undercurrent. And why is it so? And of course, if you look at the people of Yemen, let's take a look at the people of Yemen. Yemeni people. Yemeni people. What do Yemeni people look like? 
Yemeni people look like a mixture of Arabs and Africans and Indians. Yeah. Uh, so you will see people of African appearance. You will see people who look very Indian. Um, uh, yeah, it's a tragic story there. So, so it's clear that, uh, and even if you look at the people of Saudi Arabia or Oman, uh, etc., you will see this definitive Indian features in their faces. Even if you look at someone like Saddam Hussein, he, he kind of looks Indian, right? In, in, in Mesopotamia, Iraq. So the thing is that Indians had very old, very long-standing and very deep contacts and ties with Eastern Africa, with the Arabian Peninsula and so on. But then something happened. It was the Arabic imperialism that wiped out Indian culture from all these regions. And it uh, replaced the Indian culture with the Ar Arabic culture and religion. That's what's happened. There was this devastating slave trade that the Arabs carried out in Africa, um, which was horrific, which uh, which nobody speaks about. We know that the Europeans devastated Africa. The Europeans did a lot of slave slavery slavery practices in Africa, but the Arabs did even worse than that, and that's something no one speaks about. Uh, you speak you speak to various scholars about it. They will say that the Arabs used Africa for for procuring labor labor. They will use the euphemism labor instead of instead of uh, slavery. Uh, <laughs> that's how it is. So what happened is that there was a very long-standing and very deep Indian presence in Eastern Africa. And you will still find that in the genetics of the people of Eastern Africa. In Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique, in Somalia especially, in Eritrea, and in, in Arabia as well, Oman, Yemen, Saudi Arabia. It's all been wiped out by Arabic imperialism. So that's why you see hardly any Indian culture left in East Africa and in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, I would suggest, why don't you try and listen to Somalian music, the music of Somalia. It sounds very Indian. You will see very uh, definitive Indian undercurrents in the, in the music style and so on, in the way they sing and all that. So it's still visible to some extent but it's now buried deep below the surface. And what's out there on the surface exterior is the Arabic culture that is all across the place. So that's what happened. Right. Um, long question once again. Surya Shekhar Panda says, suppose the liberties upon which a civilization is founded can possibly be used as vulnerabilities with an intention to destroy the civilization. If the civilization does nothing about it, its existence is in threat. On the other hand, if it starts to regulate the liberties, it's not the same civilization anymore. From the civilization's perspective, what is the solution to this dilemma, which is a win-win situation from the perspective of the adversary? So let's talk, yeah, <laughs> multiculturalism, uh, cultural enrichment, etc. What they talk about in Europe, yeah? So Europe uh, over the past 100 years has become very progressive, very liberal, yeah, under the, the shadow of the American benevolence. So Europe has a certain kind of culture. It's very, it has all these liberties, all these rights that people have, very open um, society. And now you bring in people from, from the Middle East, from Africa, who come from very different cultures, yes. And what the, it is alleged that these immigrants 
they weaponize the liberties against the host nation. So they say that uh, we're gonna use all these liberties to establish our presence and our our culture in this nation, and then we're going to eradicate your culture. That that is the allegation that is made very often through from many quarters. Some examples are France, uh, other parts of Europe, and all that. So the question is that a very open culture. Europe is not a civilization. Europe has culture yes so he, let's say you have a culture with a lot of liberties lots of rights that people have all these rights the right to free speech the right to pro, to propagate your religion the right to convert others and so on and so forth you have the right so these rights become vulner vulnerabilities when they are weaponized against the host culture against the host nation but if you curtail these rights then the host culture loses its own identity. It is no longer the same thing. It becomes kind of intolerant. What is to be done? <laughs> what is to be done? So we have to understand that there are two sides to every coin. You should, in a good culture and society, have liberties and rights. But those liberties and rights must come with duties and obligations. So yes, you have liberties, you have rights, but you also have corresponding duties and obligations. It has to be a balance. Otherwise, you are a society that's asking for trouble. And Indian society always had this. You had rights, but you also had duties. You had liberties, but you also had obligations. So let's say you have a bunch of immigrants who come to your land and you offer them you are magnanimous you you offer them refuge in your in your territory you give them a piece of land to settle down in you tell them you are free to 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 practice your culture and so on yeah you give them these liberties and rights but you also have to explain to them what the duties are that if you want to settle down in this land you have to adopt our culture you can keep on practicing your so take the example of the zoroastrians the Parsis who fled to India because they had nowhere else to go. India was the old homeland of the Persian people. So at the end of the day, when the Arabs took over Persia and they started massacring the in inhabitants and converting people by force, those Parsis, th those Persians who wanted to safeguard their culture, they decided to escape to India. And they... they they came by boat or ship or whatever. They, they touched down on the western coast of India in, in present-day Gujarat. And the local king told them that, okay, I I am a magnanimous good guy. I'm going to give you a piece of land, a village to settle down in. They called it Sanjan or something in Gujarat. You are free to practice your religion. We will not interfere with your way of life. But you have to adopt the local dressing style. You cannot... Uh, so that's one thing. You have to dress like the locals. And secondly, you have to adopt the language of the locals as your own mother tongue. So that's how the Parsis became Gujaratis. If you look at Parsis today, their mother tongue is Gujarati. You look at Freddie Mercury, Farooq Balsara, his mother tongue was Gujarati. So all Parsis speak Gujarati. It is their mother tongue. Uh, their priests and all may know, may, may, may still speak a bit of Persian or whatever. But their actual mother tongue and their actual culture is the Gujarati culture and the, the Gujarati language. And uh, they would have had other duties and obligations as well. So in a, in, in a, 
in a good society in a robust society you it is perfectly fine to have liberties and rights but there also need to be duties and obligations you cannot be all rights and liberties and no duties i will take all the advantage that i want but i have no obligation or duty to the to the society it doesn't work like that that is a society that is doomed to fail and that's what we are witnessing in the west the indian society was very different indian civilization indian culture was built on the on the foundation of what we call the dharmic culture dharma and in dharma there are very clear obligations and duties and obviously today we are not practicing that today's indian society today's laws constitution are all adharmic all western in origin and that's where most of india's problems originate today it all dates back to the past millennium of humiliation which is something that will need to be rectified in the coming years but that's how it is so yes you should give people liberties and rights but those must be counterbalanced by by requiring people to carry out certain duties and having certain obligations to society so that's how a robust society is supposed to be people should have liberties people should have rights but they also should have duties and obligations that's how it goes <clears throat> unknown nepali says if russians don't tolerate the failure of their leaders then how come they did not dethrone stalin when operation barbarossa made russia bleed a lot initially when a country is in the middle of a do or die life or death conflict and you have a leader who is trying to keep the country afloat do you dethrone him because he, because initially the war is going badly that is what children would imagine they would do you dethrone a leader after he has con- conclusively failed in the conflict not in the middle of a conflict when you have a ship in a storm the captain is doing his best to control the ship it's taking on water it's not capsized yet do you shoot the captain in the middle of this that is a, a guarantee that that's going to guarantee that the ship will capsize you don't do it in the middle of a huge conflict yes and the russians knew what they were up against they knew how how powerful the nazi war machine was it was understood by everyone that it's going to be a long painful hard disastrous devastating conflict and russia will be really fortunate if if it survives this conflict and everyone knew it's going to cost a lot in terms of blood oceans of blood so stalin at the end of the day he won he ensured that is that his red army entered berlin before the english speakers and they are the ones who took out hitler's bunker right and possibly hitler's body that's what is alleged we don't know what happened so at the end they won stalin proved that he was the right leader initially there were major setbacks the uh, the nazi war machine the wehrmacht came up to the outskirts of moscow and from there they were pushed back um they got bogged down in the rasputitsa which i have spoken about in, in the past and all that but uh, the 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 winter that they suffered the the all the devastation that they suffered because of the winter was punishment for their failure to use the right strategy 
the, the Germans. So that's what it was. So yes, Russians don't tolerate failures, but they will not dethrone a leader in the middle of a conflict. That is suicide. So please think from a more mature level. A conflict, when it is ongoing, you have to support the leader. It's only when the, the, the outcome is clear that you can take a call. That's how it goes. You don't get rid of a leader in the middle of a conflict. That is going to ensure that you're going to lose the conflict. Okay. Yum Thangnabe says, What is the obsession of humans from all culture with pretty faces? How valuable are humans with pretty faces? Why, why do pretty faces attract so much attention? Has it got something to do with the nature of eyes or the mind? Who is considered pretty? <laughs> uh, I believe humans of all ages find a certain kind of face attractive. So it's an evolutionary thing. Even if you show what you call pretty faces to a, a three-year-old child, a toddler, then they will know, they can, they'll be able to distinguish what from what is pretty from what they would consider, what is generally considered to be not pretty. So what exactly is prettiness? Prettiness, I believe, is about facial symmetry. Both sides of the face are more or less similar. Hmm? And it's also about physical symmetry. It's not just about the face, it's also about the, the physique. Physical symmetry. So both sides should be symmetrical. And the thing about pretty faces, what you call pretty faces, what we all call pretty faces, is facial symmetry. It's an evolutionary thing. It, If a person has good facial symmetry and good physical symmetry, it is an indicator that this person has good genetics. This person has superior genetic traits. It is an indicator that this person has access to good nutrition that this person has most likely an absence of any significant disease or illness or any predisposition to illness. Yeah, uh, It is an indicator, an indirect indicator of physical fitness, of survivability. Evolution is about survival of the fittest. So it indicates that this person has a survival advantage over others. Yeah, It in indicates reproductive fitness that this person, male or female, will be able to produce offspring, viable, good, strong, healthy offspring. It may also be possibly an indicator of intelligence. So humans over thousands of years, have, over hundreds of thousands of years, have evolved into face leaders. At a glance, we can tell what does this face indicate to us. And typically, it, it appears that you know a properly symmetrical face and physique is indicative of all of these good genetic and other traits. And in 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 uh, in evolution, in survival, it's all about finding the right partner so that you can have healthy and strong offspring who will carry on the genetic lineage. That's what evolution is about. So that's why I believe humans are wired or predisposed to find certain kinds of faces and physics attractive, which indicates a whole range of other uh, characteristics that are not visible, that, that we may not think about when, it's, when we see a, a pretty face. And, you know, it's something that, well, I think it, it I'm, I don't mean to disrespect humans by comparing them with other things, but, you know, even if you, when you go to buy fruits and vegetables, you can tell by looking at a fruit, an apple or an orange, or, or a capsicum or a carrot, whether this 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 fruit is is uh, uh, what quality it is, you know. 
So fruits that are symmetrical and all, you can tell but just by one look that this this is the right fruit to pick. You know, let's say you're going to uh, you've gone out to pick mangoes or apples. You see one and you know this is the right one for me. Let me take this one. So that's all about you know take, understanding at a glance what the quality is. In evolution, it's about understanding the quality of of your potential mate or partner. Yes, and one of the indicators is your facial symmetry and physical symmetry. So that is most likely why humans, um, like you say, are obsessed with pretty faces. <laughs> it's it's an evolutionary thing. Um, okay, let's take some more questions. Aditi says, <laughs> okay, Aditi says, I want to ask, I love a person who is my friend, but I don't know how to approach him. I think he only thinks of me as a friend. Please guide me. Okay. See, uh, you are assuming that this person thinks of you as a friend. Don't assume anything. Assumption leads to problems. You assume things, you're going to end up in trouble or you're going to end up at a disadvantage. You have to make sure. So if you think that this person thinks of you only as a friend, go and talk to him. That's what I would say. You know, if you want something in life, you go to act. You have got to act. You will not get something unless you go and take it or unless you go and ask for it. Nobody's going to give you anything for free. You have to go and ask for something that you want. So if you love this person and it's, it, you, you, it's clear that you are already friends. So maybe this person uh, cares for you. Yeah. So in that case, why don't you go and ask that, you know, we, we are friends, but I have this kind of, this set of feelings for you. Is, is it something that you are in a position to reciprocate? Do you feel the same way or not? It's fine. Yes or no, but let me know. It's always, uh, the direct approach is always the best approach. And it's not like girls should not do it. Girls can also do it. I have known girls who, who did that. So it's fine. Uh, so you have to understand that in life, if you want something, you have to go and make the move. You have to go and take it. You have to go and ask for it. If somebody has something that you want, then they will not give it to you unless you go and ask for it. And then if they say yes or no, it's it's up to them. That's not under your control. But what is in your control is that you go and make the approach. So uh, I hope the guy is good. Yeah, don't, don't go for some random... It should be a guy of, of good quality, I hope. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's my advice. Don't, don't be shy. Be bold. Go and talk to the guy and see how it goes. Yeah. All the best. Shri <laughs> Balram Putin says, how do you deal with procrastination? See, procrastination is something that's inbuilt in everybody. We want to be comfortable. We want to be relaxed. We want to have some fun. We want to scroll through whatever it is. We want to find some way to keep us occupied, which does not make us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Um, so some people look for motivation. They they listen, they watch motivational videos. They hear motivational speeches and so on. See what motivation does is is it it uh, triggers an emotional response in people. But emotions go up and go down. Emotions aren't steady. Emotions are never steady in anybody. Even if if a person looks calm all the time, the emotions are there. But that person has it under control. So emotions are going to get you nowhere. How to deal with procrastination? The first thing is you need to have a goal. You need to have a target and not a target 
you need to have a long term target and it should be broken up into smaller pieces and you need to have your task for the day okay today i need to do these two th- two big things everything else is okay if i do th- these two big things then my day is done and i've i've got a win for today and then you need to have the motivation because that target should mean something to you so sitting idle should be more painful than going and working for it yeah and the most important thing is you need to have a system a process that you follow every single day now you know creative people don't like routine but even for creative people routine is important because that's what produces the the results um so you need to have a target a big target long term target which you can break down into smaller pieces you need to have one or two main tasks for today for each day and then you need to have a system and a process as which will help you get those tasks done what is a system like that i wake up at so and so time no compromise 7 am i'm up then i brush then i go out in the sun 10 minutes 15 minutes then i go to the gym and work out for for 60 minutes or whatever whatever process it should be something you follow every single day and then i do so and so task and then i do so and so task if you have a set process a routine process that you uh, that is non negotiable then it is impossible to procrastinate so you need to create your system everybody is different for some people a certain process will work for for other people a different kind of process will work you have to find what works for you so it's not it's never about emotions it's never about motivation it's about creating a process and a system and you should have a goal if you have this all of this ready then you will not ever procrastinate all the best sir uh sheikh hamza says if alexander the great and chinggis khan were in the same time period who would win discuss there's nothing to discuss there's nothing to discuss chinggis rules alex rules <laughs> anita says greece was also divided into city states and kingdoms yes and yet it is called one country while in the case of india the division of land into republics and kingdoms is used to point out to say that india was never one country why why hypocrisy western hypocrisy greece was always a bunch of city states who were always fighting each other read up the peloponnesian war they would have these confederations you know small alliances from time to time sometimes they would fight each other sometimes they would cooperate with each other it was sparta against athens the the these the athenians persia was involved they they even took sides with persia from it's at some point in time during the peloponnesian conflict and uh, they were always fighting each other it was always city states there was never any unity and yet today they talk about greek culture greek civilization greek as one nation Greece is one nation, but in the case of India, it's like you are always divided. There was no nation called India. Such blatant, incredible hypocrisy! I am so glad that Indians are now beginning to understand this and point out these factual inconsistencies. So yeah, it's just hypocrisy. There is no other answer. Complete, total hypocrisy. Rishav D Goswami says, "What if Gandhi had not come to India?" Yeah, so Gandhi was in South Africa for twenty—I don't know, twenty plus years, yeah, roughly. And then the then he somehow came to India and he became overnight the biggest superstar, superhero in Indian politics and the greatest freedom fighter of them all. The question is, what if Gandhi had not come to India? Well, if Gandhi, if Mr. Gandhi, if Mr. Mohandas Gandhi had not come to India for whatever reason, the British would have found some other Zelensky in India. 
to do the, to to play that role the british would have found some other zelensky this is a very old game zelensky is one of many yeah there have been lots of zelenskys and there will be many more in the future as long as the anglo saxon empire persists so if mr gandhi had not come the british would have found some other zelensky to play that role in india let's briefly take some questions from the live chat because uh, that's what we do right <laughs> uh, okay let's uh, take a question from giuseppe di fraia giuseppe di fraia great name I like it what do you think please about the taliban banning women from university and crushing women's rights thanks um look personally i believe that there should be never any discrimination between between the genders male or females i believe all human beings should have the same opportunities and the same same rights same starting points that that's from my perspective because that's the culture and civilization that i come from we have always respected women we have always considered women to be at least as equal to men if not higher than men that's the kind of uh, regard we have always had had for women and women we have had great women scholars in india i will not go into the list some of the holiest texts of indian civilization the rigveda much of the texts of the rigveda have been written by women female authors so i we all we indians believe that women should be educated and they should get as much education as they are willing to get yeah so they should rise to their full potential full potential the taliban are pashtuns they are the descendants of ancient indians they are the, the descendants of the rigvedic pakta clan pashtuns and today they 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 have a different culture they have imbibed absorbed a different culture because of the because of the process of history because of what happened in history and this new culture that 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 is now theirs according to that culture they believe that women should not be educated the women women have only one task which is to procreate produce offspring and take care of the kitchen and the home uh i believe look the principle of westphalian uh the westphalian world order it is built upon certain principles one of the principles is non interference non interference means what happens in my nation is my business what happens in a different nation nation state is their business you don't interfere in my business i will not interfere in your business that's how it goes so i think it's extraordinarily unfortunate that our sisters in afghanistan are being deprived of education but at the end of the day uh, maybe that's how it goes in their nation but there's a whole set of set, set of circumstances is in iran as well once again what's happening in iran is not india's business it's not india's problem i i'm i'm sure you would say it's a very cold hearted thing to say um very but that's just the way it is that's how the world works if the people of iran want to change their circumstances they are welcome to do that yeah we will give them moral support if the people of afghanistan want a different set of circumstances for themselves it is for them to change their circumstances yeah that's how it is so i think it's unfortunate i think it's not how that's not how it should be but it's their business it's their country they are running the country the americans have handed over the country to the taliban so if it is anybody's fault it is the fault of the americans so that's how it is yeah
Um, okay, let's uh, let's see some other questions. Is the moon formed by a collision between the Earth and a rogue planet? Uh, it's the the major thesis or the or the most prominent theory. The the theory which is the most accepted is that there was a collision between the Earth and an ancient protoplanet, not a rogue planet. Because planets don't have emotions and agendas. They simply move along according to the laws of physics. So India, so most likely what happened, according to the mainstream theory, theory, is that there was a collision between the Earth, the ancient Earth, and a protoplanet from the time. They two collided and it, it ejected a huge amount of material which went into Earth's orbit and eventually coalesced together into what is now the moon. So that's what is uh, believed by a majority of scientists. Uh, my thoughts on the God of War game. It gets a lot of support in India. What would be India's response if Indian gods were added in the game? I have no idea about this God of War game. I've never played it. I've never seen it. Um, so, yeah. I would say that, you know, if Indian gods were to be in a game, it should be an Indian game. Because once you start, once you allow the these Western developers to use Indian gods in a game, they're going to mess up everything. They're going to disrespect the way, uh, or gods. Take it. Take an example. What was the latest Marvel movie with which had Thor and the female Thor and all that? I don't remember the name of the movie. Uh, Natalie Portman f- portrays a female version of Thor with fake muscles and all that. In that movie... There is a scene in which there's this big assembly of gods, all the various gods of, of from all parts of the world, except for Indian gods. Indian gods aren't uh, shown there. But you have Thor and you have Zeus. Zeus is the king of the gods or something like that. The funny thing is that Thor and Zeus are the same god. And they're the same as the Indian god Indra. And in this movie, Zeus, the Greek god, the Greek version of Indra, is shown as this fat, useless guy very funny guy, not worthy of respect. And Thor also is shown in a kind of disrespectful manner. So they are blatantly disrespecting the ancient Indo-European pantheon of gods. Thor and Zeus are the same god, the same divinity, the same as Indra. But they have been portrayed as two different people and two antagonists of, of some kind in that movie. We don't want our gods to be pulled into this nonsense. So I would say it's good that they're not, they're not showing Indian gods in that. Let's keep our gods out of that. Um, what are the different philosophies in Sanatan Dharma? West, are Western philosophies built on Sanatan Dharma philosophical ideas? Listen, you want me to talk about philosophy? I can give you... It, it, it can take hours. So I would say there is, that in on my channel, there is this, this video about Indian philosophy. I think it's called Indian philosophy crash course or something. It's just a five minute video in which I give a very brief and very rapid overview of the different philosophical systems in Sanatan Dharma. Uh, are Western philosophies built on Sanatan Dharma philosophical ideas? None of the Christian philosophies are built on Sanatan Dharma ideas. Some elements and aspects have been stolen, especially many of the more modern philosophers have, have wholesale stolen many of the uh, Indian philosophical ideas and pass them off as their own. That's happened. Yeah. But if you want an overview of the various schools of thought in Indian philosophy, go take a look at my channel, search for crash philosophy course, course crash course, and you will find a brief video about that. All right. 
<clears throat> what else do we have uh, do you think this pandemic wave is really alarming please stop panicking nothing is going to go wrong in india the chinese have messed up big time the real what is the root cause of the problems in china it's the fact that their vaccines don't work we all believe that the chinese have great scientists and great bio labs and all that and they are the best in the world look at the efficiency of the chinese vaccine it's abysmal out of all the vaccines that have been developed for the coronavirus worldwide the chinese vaccine is the worst and that's the root cause for the disaster that's unfolding in china right now and xi jinping obviously has his pride so he will not accept any indian offer of indian vaccines and anyway now it's the situation has gone way beyond the tipping point so it's it's a disaster in china and and the variant that is currently you know spreading through china is one of the omicron variants omicron right and we indians are all vaccinated against this variant the indian vaccine is one of the best if not the best vaccine in the world so in india we have used the indian covaxin uh this the covid shield also that we have used it it may be a foreign vaccine but it's also one of the one of the better vaccines so india has made sure that we did not take the garbage pfizer vaccine the uh, mrna vaccine with these with the doji spike proteins and all that we have kept that out of india the americans did not like it but yeah they can take a hike so the indian vaccine the ones we have used are the good vaccines they are efficacious they don't have the ugly side effects that are killing people across the west yeah uh so indians are now fully vaccinated and we also have good uh, natural immunity and all that yeah so there is nothing for us to worry about the media will will try to create a sense of panic ignore it there is nothing for us in india to worry about and the other thing is that the coronavirus is not a very dangerous virus it affects people who have who are immunologically compromised people who have pre-existing conditions like cancer or diabetes or heart disease or people who are smokers or people who are alcoholics or people who are extremely obese or something so if you have one of these preconditions then you may be at a higher risk of of having complications if you are reasonably healthy there's nothing for you to worry about so i would say there is nothing to worry about please do not get swayed by the indian media they will try their best to create another panic nothing's gonna go wrong india is perfectly safe india is perfectly fine relax take it easy and keep working keep working that's it keep going on don't stop and with that i'm gonna end today's session we have crossed the 2 hour mark so that's the end of today's session thank you so much for all these wonderful questions once again i have not been able to take all the questions but that's how it always goes so um i will see you all next week in the next indian interest live stream and then the next ask abhijit live stream until then take care and i'll see you soon bye